Well, we've been in this series that we've entitled Set in Stone, a study on the Ten Commandments, and we find ourselves on Commandment 6 this morning. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20, uh, we find ourselves in uh, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, dealing with the sixth commandment. And uh, last week we uh, dealt uh, with the fourth commandment. And if you're wondering where's the fifth at in the grand scheme of things, we have to go back a couple weeks ago when John Pilkington uh, shared about honoring uh, your father and mother. And so we go from number four to number six. And I do just want to uh, challenge all of you that Some have said, this is really hard stuff. This isn't easy. And my response to you would be, if you think it's hard to listen to, think about how how difficult it is to preach. And uh, and yet, I want to remind us that we're dealing with the law. And uh, the law isn't easy. The law is something that we cannot perfect on our own. And so there's always going to be a great deal of conviction, a great deal of some reordering in our lives. But I want to remind us over and over again that we don't have to get this thing 100% right because we have a Lord and Savior who took care of it all. And we have a Lord and Savior who has saved us and redeemed us. And so this law, while it convicts us of our sin, it should never leave us in bondage, but it should allow us to see the path of righteousness, how God has ordered the Christian life to be. And the law is a great example of how we can do that. And this is no more needed than in today's message that from uh, just an easy glance to it, many of us will put our hands behind our heads and lean back and say, all right, I don't have to worry about this one. I've never killed anybody. I've never had uh, a time in my life where I've ended someone's life, and so this is one I can sit back, I can uh, just kind of enjoy my morning, and uh, if that is your response this morning as we look at verse 13 of Exodus chapter 20, as my dad used to say all the time, you've got another thing coming. Because when we look at the law, we need to understand that each of these commandments, there were rules that we talked about in week one. And one of the rules to the interpreting the commandments that we dealt with in week one was the idea of categories. And when we look at the issue of murder, we can't just look at, have I taken someone's life? But I have to look at the whole idea of the category of life-taking. And what is that involved? And then, of course, there was the rule of the negative and positive side of the Ten Commandments. And today, we're not only going to look at what it means to take one's life, but we're also going to see the admonition that we should be promoting life in all ways. And if we are not actively promoting life in the lives of those around us, then we are just as guilty as the one who takes life. And we're going to talk about that here in the next couple moments. And so uh, let's look to the sixth commandment this morning. I'm going to have you stand uh, for the reading of a short passage, just a couple words, and then we're going to again ask God's blessing on our time. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13. It simply says this, and let us hear it loud and clear this morning. You shall not murder. You shall not murder. Let's pray. Father God, we have a short passage in front of us. And Lord, as I have learned this week, there is so much that is involved in this command. And so, Lord, I pray that we would open our hearts and not think that I got those four words in the English down, you shall not murder. I've never done anything like that, and so I'm able to just sit back and enjoy a message that's not about me. Oh, Lord, we are all lawbreakers, breaking of the sixth commandment. 
Lord, as one who preaches to your people, I have broken this command more than I would ever like to admit. And Lord, if I know my congregation well, I know that there are many out there that have done the same. But thanks be to God that there is one who never broke the sixth commandment, who never broke any of the ten, or the entirety of the entire law, Lord, his name was Jesus. And so great hope comes to a lawbreaker like me. When I put my faith and trust in Jesus, then I am made righteous just as my Savior was. And so, Lord, I pray you would open our hearts and minds this morning to the truth of your word and that we would be changed as a result. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever started reading something, whether in the paper or on the television or in a letter, where you knew exactly where it was going by the first couple statements that you've read? You didn't even have to go to the end of the sentence, except in this scenario, what you read at the beginning was totally changed by the last part of the statement at the end. This happened to me some time ago when I was traveling on Interstate 88 going into the city, and I was driving alongside a minivan. And the minivan was filled with kids, a wonderful father and mother, and you could just look at them, and you just, you know, you've seen those families, not the Badal family by any stretch of the imagination, but those families that just look like a great family. The dad and mom are quietly talking amongst one another, and then you look, and there were four kids in the back of the minivan, and they were all enjoying some TV uh, show on the, on the DVD player, and no fighting, no, no issues, and I'm just sitting there kind of looking and going, you know what? That's some good parenting. They're, they're doing a good job. Things are going well for them because if you drive by the Badal family on Interstate 88, uh, there's all kinds of chaos and confusion going on. And, and so I was looking at this family and really just kind of admiring them. And as they nudged ahead of me, not breaking the speed limit by any stretch of the imagination, as they nudged ahead of me, I saw on the back of their car a bumper sticker. And the bumper sticker was telling me exactly what I knew of this family as I looked at them. It had four statements. It said, pro-God. And I was like, yeah, I like that. It said, pro-family. I said, you better believe it, they are pro-family. It said, pro-kids. Yeah, I like where this is going. And then the final statement said, pro-choice. That was exactly my reaction i got to tell you, a whole bunch of judgment began to well up with inside of me. How can you start off a creed so well, pro-God, pro-family, pro-kids, and end so badly? My judgment alarms went off as I began to think to myself, how can someone say they are pro-God and not be pro-life? How could one live in abject absurdity to start a statement like that? and then finish so badly. My thought was, as brother and sister, as good and as right as your little family looks, you need to go get your head examined because something is out of whack. And then the Holy Spirit started talking because the Holy Spirit began to ask the question, where are you at when it comes to being pro-life? Where are you at when it comes to dealing with the sixth commandment. Can I tell you, brothers and sisters, 
As messed up as that family uh, and their thinking may have been from our eyes, can I tell you that each and every one of us have some messed up thinking when it comes to the issue of life and the issue of the sixth commandment when it comes to the issue of murder? Now, some of you right away will do exactly what I do, and that is quickly put up the protective uh, shield that says, no, 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 I, I, I'm, I'm as pro-life as anyone can, can come. I, man, I, I hit the ballot box. I check that off each and every time. I'll put it on a bumper sticker. I'll, I'll tell people about it. But brothers and sisters, I want us to know that being pro-life is far more than we would ever, ever know. As you know, as we look at these commandments, they are far more involved than we would have ever thought. We can't just label being pro-life as something we wear on a label or we check on a box. It's got to affect every part of us. And so when God says, do not murder, then we need to listen. And we need to look at our own murderous thoughts, our own murderous ways. We see it all over the world. The Pope Pope John Paul II once said that we live within a culture of death, and he's absolutely right, because we don't have to look very far to see the headlines of death all around us. Here in the Chicagoland area, we don't have to look very far uh, from this very church to know that Drew Peterson right now is on trial for the wrongful death of his third wife while his fourth wife is missing and presumed dead. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture of death. How can we look very far beyond uh, the area that we live in to look up to Wisconsin or Colorado where two men filled with anger and rage and all kinds of confusion would enter into a house of worship and a movie theater with the attempt to try to kill hundreds of people and accomplishing by killing a couple dozen? How can we not see that we live in a culture of death? We live less than an hour away from a city that boasts a lot of things, the city of Chicago, but the worst thing that it boasts is the greatest city rate for homicide. We live in a culture of death. As we turn on our TVs, as we watch our movies, we are blown away by the thoughts of murder as we watch over and over and over again the images of not simply benign taking of life, but grotesque and ugly murder. Many of us would cringe at the very thought of a Jeffrey Dahmer who would dismember his victims and put their parts into a freezer, yet millions upon millions of people went with gleeful anticipation to a movie called Silence of the Lambs. We live in a culture of death when we look at the news and we grimace at the thought of what a madman will do, but we'll pay our $10 and we'll eat our popcorn while we watch it on the big screen. Brothers and sisters, we live in a culture of death. And the thing that we have to understand is that it isn't just involving the taking of life, but we have to understand also that being pro-life is something that means that as a people, we are going to look out for our brothers and sisters. We are going to take care of them when they fall. We're going to help them when they're in need. And brothers and sisters, a lot of times in our world today, we don't see that because we live in a culture of death. I don't agree with everything the Pope says, but boy, this one I agree with because in a civilized country like the United States, the probability of you being in a car accident or a plane crash 
are less than you being murdered in the United States of America. We live in a culture of death. So we come to the sixth commandment, and we hear God says he wants none of it. And his heart remains unchanged from the moment that his finger etched that into stone for Moses and the children of Israel. His heart has remained unchanged since the moment the guilt of Cain's brother Abel hit the ground. God's words are clear. You shall not murder. Amidst the chaotic backdrop of this culture of death, we have to examine what these words mean to us today and apply them to our lives. The first thing we have to understand, if we're going to examine this issue of being pro-life, is we must affirm God's authority over life. God's authority over life. I want to make this very clear right from the get-go. And you may say, Tim, you, uh, you've said this over and over again, and I think we just need to continue to do it because I need to hear it over and over again. When God tells Israel that they can't and they should not murder, he isn't saying, all right, kids, come together. Let's, let's talk with your celestial grandpa for a second. You know, it's not good that you murder each other. Try not to do that. That's not what God is saying. With the booming voice of the greatest God voice you can come up with, God is echoing through the valleys and the mountaintops. You shall not murder. And here's why. Because I am God and because I said so. And so if you begin to think that it's just a suggestion, you're wrong. We need to understand, brothers and sisters, that God is the boss. He's the one who dictates the rules to us with regards to this thing called life. Within each of the commandments is the fundamental understanding that God is a personal creator and he is the ruler of all things. If you don't get that down, then these commandments will do you no good. Because God is, the universe and all that it has and exists has been created, and as a result, he rules over it. He says, I am, and therefore you shall, is the phrase we need to understand. Because God is, we shall obey his commands. Now, what do I mean by all this? There's an extent to uh, the reign of God over our lives and circumstances. Of all the created things in the universe that God made, there is one thing that stands above all the rest. Over all the celestial bodies, I want you to understand this. We've got a Mars rover machine right now going around Mars as we speak. It took some eight months to get there with some of the most powerful rockets that we have. And now we've got this little rover going around the planet. I want you to understand something. Mars is pretty amazing. Mars and its creation and all that is involved in Mars is beyond human understanding. And let me tell you something. God says that you and I are greater than Mars. We're high above that. All the plant and animal life that we see around us, the magnificence of all of creation, God says that human life is the pinnacle of his creation. We are greater than even that of angels because of the opportunity and relationship that we have with our God, because we are the apple of God's eye. And as a result of that, we have to know and understand 
that when God says we can't kill each other, that it isn't simple enough or isn't just a simple truth that says, well, if I end someone's life, it's, it's as if ending a plant or animal's life. It is far and fundamentally different than that. Because here's the thing, we bear the image of God. I want you to think about this for a moment. When Christ came, the God of all creation came, the second person of the Trinity came, he did not come as an angel. He did not come as a plant. He did not come as an animal. But brothers and sisters, he elevated humanity when he put on flesh and became one of us. It is because of this truth, I want you to hear this statement, that every biblically consistent Christian must affirm the following. No matter what skin color, no matter what age, no matter what disabilities, no matter what status, no matter what orientation, no matter your past, their future, all men, women, and children who have ever lived and will ever live are the creation and made in the image of our God. And therefore, every person, hear me out, every person and every life demands dignity honor, and value. Everyone. That means we can't be racist. That means we can't be bigots. That means that we can't say because someone is a sinner and, uh, and hates every part of who we are and, and our message of the gospel. Every person, every man, woman, and child deserves dignity, honor, and value. And here's why. John Calvin said it this way. Our neighbor bears the image of God. To abuse him, malign him, or misuse him is to do violence to the very person of God who images himself in every human soul. When we hurt, when we malign, when we misuse our neighbors, Calvin says we aren't just hurting them, but we are therefore an affront to a holy God who created them. Now, why is this? Because we see that God is involved and has authority over the entrance of life. He involves himself in the entrance of life, unlike the evolutionists who say that our existence, and I want you to think about this for a moment, because these are smart people, these scientists who tell us this. They tell us that eons ago, when there was nothing in all of creation, that two somethings, even though there was nothing, two somethings, let me remind you that there was nothing, that two somethings, I don't think you're understanding that when there was nothing, two somethings came together and happened in this place of nothingness that happened, two of them happened to collide into one another. Now let's go back, let's rewind out of an area of nothing. Two somethings came together and they happened to collide with one another, creating a big bang. And out of that, in eons of time, that big bang produced what we are today. Brothers and sisters, it's far easier to be a person of faith and believe in a creator God than it is to have two nothings become something, okay? And I don't mean to be um, trite about that, but we need to understand there's an absurdity to that logic. But when you have that kind of logic, I want you to understand that when you have the logic that human life is a issue of chance, then who cares if you take someone's life? That's the idiocy of the world we live in because every major civilization would say to take one's life is wrong. To do so would be against the very culture of the world that we live in. And yet, if we really think about it, who cares? If we were here by chance, then we'll die by chance. And So let's just leave it there. But by 
The biblical standard we see that the Bible over and over again affirms God's authority. We are told that before we were born, that we were fearfully and wonderfully made, that we were knit together in our mother's womb. We are told in Job 33, 4, that the Spirit of God made us and the breath of Almighty gave us life. Have you thanked the Lord for that? You see, what the scriptures tell us is that he made us out of the dust of the ground. That he took the dust of the ground and, and somehow, in some way, he scooped it into his hands. And just with a blowing of his breath, he breathed life into that dust. And out of that came man and subsequently then woman. And we aren't just simply creatures. I always get a kick out of the Discovery Channel. Not too long ago, I was watching the Discovery Channel, and this individual was trying to tell me that uh, uh, because they kind of look like me, they have the same bone structure, they're about as hairy as I am, that a chimpanzee is really just a human being not evolved yet. And I got a kick out of it because they said, you know, many people don't believe that monkeys are all that smart, but they can communicate with one another. And so they show the picture, and you got ooh, ah, 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 and they're sitting there screaming at each other and doing all these things, and little do we know how much they're communicating. Brothers and sisters, let us never forget that while apes and chimpanzees and all animals have the ability to communicate with one another, it's nothing in comparison to what we have done. We have language. We have multiple languages. Have you seen? I mean, when was the last time you went to a museum and you saw beautiful works of art and creativity and like, oh, Bobo the Clown uh, ape did that. No. We've got to understand that God has affixed something within us to make us that special creation. And as a result of that, after knitting us together, that we have and will always be the product of a creative genius God. So we're not here by chance. If you start to think that you're here by chance, then life will start to look like a mistake. But because you're the bearer of God's image, he longs to love you. He longs to save you. He longs to be actively involved in your life. This is the God of the universe. Notice that it involves the full extent of our lives. So we have the entrance of life. We also have the full extent of our lives. The biblical understanding of a God rebukes the belief of what we call deism, the idea or thought that God may have created the world, but after he created it, that he became unconcerned with his creation and kind of left it there and went on some celestial vacation, leaving us to our own demise. We don't see that in the biblical understanding of God and his involvement with creation. Turn in your Bibles for a moment to Acts 17. Acts 17 in the New Testament. You see, this is important. You say, Tim, we're not talking about uh, the issue of, of murder, we'll get there, but we need to understand why murder is so bad, and to understand it, we have to understand what God says about human life, and once we get that, then we can see the tragedy that comes when we take human life. Acts chapter 17, Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 24, we see that Paul is in Athens, and Paul is addressing a group of individuals who are not believers. In fact, they are being, for the first time, introduced to the God of the universe. And Paul says, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, he says this, Men of Athens, I perceive that you are, uh, in every way, are religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found an altar with this inscription, to the unknown God. They're worshiping a God they don't even know. But therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Listen to what Paul says 
to the people of Athens about who God is. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Now notice, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. And having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Paul tells the people of Athens that God is a God who is intricately involved in your everyday life. He determines where you're going, what you're doing, and how you're involved in all that. You say, well, Tim, how does free choice and all of that fall into it? That's a mystery that I don't understand because it seems as if I'm making decisions, but God seems to have the providential oversight of everything that I do. The scripture tells us in Proverbs chapter 16 that in, a, in his heart, man plans his course, but the Lord determines his path. And so we have to understand that God is involved in our life, not only the lives of believers, but unbelievers alike. And we have to acknowledge as well that every good and perfect gift, as James said, comes from above. All that we have, all that we are, are gracious and benevolent gifts from a merciful and loving God who showers down grace and mercy each and every day of our lives. So if God's involved in the beginning and the full extent of our lives, then we have to understand that God is also the authority when it comes to the exit from life. Just as God was there when I was conceived, likewise he will be there when I take my last breath. Write this passage down for Samuel chapter 2, verse 6. The Lord brings death and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and raises up. We're reminded of this truth in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, that it is appointed for man to die, and then comes judgment. Well, who makes that appointment? Who's the one who picks the time and hour of our departure? God alone is the giver as well as the taker of life. It's his prerogative. It's his place. And the taking of the prerogative unto oneself, meaning... If I take that from God, then I'm usurping God's role and I'm placing it in my own. Every death, every wrongful murder that takes place is first of all a sin unto God because that individual, that murderer has usurped the authority that only God has in taking life. He has rebelled against God and he has taken that and I will tell you it is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of God. And we need to understand that if we're going to understand this. And so we see that God is involved in our lives. He's the authority. And the reason why we have murder, the reason why we have all the issues like abortion and euthanasia and suicide and mass murder going on in our world is the second point, and that is our hostility towards life. While all of the world and throughout history has been agreed that murder is wrong, then why do we do it? Do we have anger issues? Did our mom and dads not hug us enough when we were kids? Does it happen just by accident? Our world will say that it is unexplainable. 
Earlier this week, I was watching a couple minutes of a newscast that was going on, and the title of the newscast segment was In the Mind of a Madman, Trying to Understand Mass Murderers. And the first uh, interview and quote was from a doctor who was called the leading thinker on the issue. And he said, we really don't know why men and women do such things. It doesn't seem to embrace logic. Now, i got to tell you, uh, when I'm watching TV, I have a bad habit of sometimes yelling at the TV. And when I heard that, I wanted to start yelling at the TV. Because the world says, we don't understand this. Why does this happen? Why do these bad things happen? We, we're good people. We, we want to live in, in, with one another in love and sincerity and all of that. And that's just not the case. Because Paul says to that leading thinker, you're a moron. And the reason why is because Paul says in Romans chapter 8, I'll get in trouble for saying that by my wife. She says, don't say that kind of stuff. So I'm sorry, honey. Romans chapter 8, verses 5 through 8, tells us this. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now notice what he says. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's laws, indeed it cannot. So those who are in the flesh cannot please God. I want you to understand something. The reason why we have murder, the reason why we have suicide, the reason why we have abortion, the reason why we have such depravity when it comes to the taking of individuals' lives is because we as a people are hostile to God. God has said, I don't want you to do this. I've created each and every person in my image. I've given them a soul. I've given them the opportunity to have a relationship with the creator God, and I've done so. And man shakes his fist at God and says, who are you to tell me what to do? And I will tell you, when a society turns to that, it will be filled with all types of fits of rage, envy, and even murder. And so why do we have all of these murders happening? Why do we have all of these abortions taking place? Why is there all kinds of suicide and all kinds of issues of road rage? The answer is because sinners are hostile to God. And so what are we to do with this? First of all, we need to understand some things. When we look at this hostility, we first need to get a definition of murder. What's the definition of murder? Again, in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, within the literal rendering of the Hebrew translation, the Hebrew has two words, not four, but two. What God wrote in those stone tablets were the words, no killing, no killing. Therefore, the King James Version translates, do not kill. Now, we have to examine that because the word in the Hebrew is ratzach, which has uh, a very significant and important sense to what it's trying to articulate. In the Bible, in fact, just in the Old Testament, there are eight words that are used for killing. Ratzak is one of them, and this word is never used in the speaking of military terms or the death that happens as a result of a, a war, nor is it used in a judicial way. This word was never used with result of capital punishment taking place, nor was it uh, ever used in the slaying of an animal. 
And so what we need to understand, and there's great debate with regards to this, that what it means is that therefore there is no killing whatsoever. And so there's no killing of animals, no killing of plant life, and it's just absurd because you live towards that, we'd all be dead, and then thus we've all killed ourselves. Because if we can't kill plant life, then we ourselves will die because we can't eat. And so we have to understand what does this word mean. Ratzak means and is used in these ways. Number one, for cold-blooded murder that's premeditated for crimes of passion, and for the wrongful death due to some aspect of negligence. So to summarize what this word means, so we have a proper definition. What is God forbidding us to do? He is forbidding the unjust taking of what I would say is a legally innocent life. So it applies to murder again in cold blood, manslaughter, which is murder with passionate rage, or negligent homicide that results from our own recklessness or carelessness. The best translation, in fact, just write this down somewhere, the best rendering of the uh, Hebrew would be, you shall not kill unlawfully. You shall not kill unlawfully. Why can we uh, kill animals? Because the Bible says we have dominion over them and that we are to uh, use them as food for our own well-being. And so it's not unlawful for us to do that. So once we understand that, we've got to have an understanding of the different types of murder that is out there. I won't take long with this, but we need to understand a couple of them. Right down, first of all, there's the issue of physical murder. This is the taking of one's life. This is what we see in the book of Genesis when Cain gets angry at Abel, And instead of resolving his anger as God tells him to, he allows his anger to get the best of him and he kills his brother. He spills innocent blood and he murders Abel. So we have that. We see that going on all throughout. Every day that we turn on the news, there is no doubt, especially in a city as large as Chicago, we see physical murder taking place. Then there is what we call personal murder. Personal murder, of course, is the issue of suicide, the taking of one's life. This is seen in the lives of people who say that there's no hope, who struggle to experience any kind of joy, who see the only way out of this life is to end it all. And as great as losing a loved one is, many uh, doctors and uh, uh, counselors will say that some of the deepest pain is of the individuals who are left behind who have to come to grips with an issue of suicide close to them. The third one is physician-assisted murder. When we think about this, one man comes to mind, and that is the man, Dr. Jack Kevorkian, known as Dr. Death, who would take patients and involve them into a concoction of medications with one intent and purpose in mind, and that is to kill them for whatever reason, whether it's they're struggling, some, as they've researched, some of them just because of depression, that Kevorkian, who takes a view that God is not the authority of life, says, I can be. And therefore, we'll snuff it out. We have prenatal murder going on, otherwise called abortion. While the Holocaust served as an example of man's hostility towards God in Nazi Germany, it pales, listen to me, brothers and sisters, it pales in comparison to the Holocaust that took six million Jews. Since 1973, the Holocaust of abortion has taken nearly 50 million in America alone. That means that Every day, 3,500 babies lose their life. To put that into a, an understanding that may, may help us, 
That means each and every day since Roe v. Wade in 1973 came into existence, we have had a perpetual September 11th happen every day. And brothers and sisters, because we live in a culture of death, it will never make any of the media because we accept this. Why? Because we're hostile towards God. Because we look at God and we say, God, that embryo, that uh, fertilized egg after conception, it's not a life. Who says you can tell me that it's life? You can't tell me it's life. And so as a result of that, we, can't, uh, we can do whatever we want with it. Now here's, the, here's the, the crazy thing about it. The reason why we have that argument and whether it's life or not is because we still live in a culture that says murder is wrong. But can I tell you, brothers and sisters, the day is coming when people will say, it's a life, and I don't want it. And therefore, I'm going to get rid of it. Brothers and sisters, that argument's coming sooner than we would ever know. That means, just so you help you understand, an abortion takes place every 20 seconds. Every 20 seconds here in America. Each of these are in direct violation of the Sixth Commandment. In a recent book called The Culture of Death, Wesley Sims argues a small but influential group of philosophers, lawmakers, and healthcare policymakers are actively seeking to persuade our culture and nation into the thinking, listen to this, that killing is beneficial, suicide is rational, natural death is undignified, and caring properly and compassionately for people who are elderly prematurely born, disabled, despairing, or dying is a burden that wastes emotional and financial resources. We live in a culture of death, and as a result of that, that kind of thinking is an assault against the biblical mandate of the sixth command. It's this type of rhetoric that's convinced many Americans that some lives are worth less than others, and that, in fact, some lives are worth nothing at all. And as a result, we see more abortions, more euthanasia, and more assisted suicide and murder. It leaves us with some important disclaimers. Is all killing and taking of life wrong? The scriptures are clear that no. There are a few occurrences where light or taking a life is permitted. I don't have these in my notes. I wrote these down as we were singing. A um, couple that I, I, I don't have. I'll get to two big ones, but... Uh, families who are surrounded in an atmosphere of love, watching machines live the life of a uh, dying individual who make the decision that it's time to let the person pass into death is okay. That's not murder. That's not euthanasia, nor is that uh, doing what Dr. Kevorkian did. Of course, all of this is done under a caring physician. Number two, law enforcement. When a police officer is doing his job of protecting and serving and ends the life of an individual, as long as it's done in a judicial way, it's okay. The Lord gives that right to police officers as the ones who help enforce God's judgment. What about if someone comes into your house and tries to wreak havoc on your family in that? Can you end someone's life? Yeah, self-defense is, is an okay way. Uh, of doing that. But let's talk about more ones that, that hit closer to home, probably have a, a greater political involvement, and that is what I call judicial execution, capital punishment. While it's always wrong for us to take the law into our own hands, capital punishment, listen to me, when justly administered by the governing authorities, 
seemingly as one lawful form of ending one's life. But can I say to you, it must be done with fear and trembling? I was watching, and I'm sure many of you did, uh, one of the uh, primary uh, debates, one of the 7,000 that they had, primary debates. And one of the questions was asked of one of the Republican candidates with regards to his, uh, his job as a governor of a state that boasts the most capital punishments. And before the man could even answer, brothers and sisters, applause and raucous laughter broke out in the crowd. Can I tell you something? While God gives the nation a right and governing authorities the right to inflict judgment on wrongdoers, we should never applaud it. We should never get excited about it because the Bible makes it clear that God does not delight in the death of the wicked. And if he doesn't, we shouldn't either. We've got to understand that. But there's a part of us that just really, really likes that kind of stuff and says, yeah, that's good. They're getting what they deserve. Brothers and sisters, when that comes into your mind as it does in mine, let us be reminded that we have not gotten what we deserve. So let's remember that. Well, I personally hold to a government's right and prerogative to do, according to Romans 13, what it will to bring forth God's judgment it should be done with all soberness and care, never taking it lightly or flippantly. How about just war? These are, these are difficult things, and I don't have a lot of time to deal with them, but one other area that the Bible seems to allow for killing to take place is in the matter of warfare. The Bible teaches that it is not unlawful to kill enemies in times of war, provided, and this is very important, provided that the wars are just. And of course, wars of justice must be considered carefully by a country like America. Why? Because we are so heavily armed. The amount of carnage that we can create is amazing. And so for a long time, Christians have argued that war is permissible, listen to me, is permissible only when it is waged by a legitimate government for a worthy cause with a force that is proportional to the attack that it has sustained against soldiers striving to do everything to save civilian lives and after all means of resolution have failed. Can I tell you that we as Christians, as evangelicals, break this commandment because we are so hungry at times for war. And while war is something that is sanctioned, again, it should be done as a last resort. And it should never be done, hear me, for political reasons whatsoever. It's the taking of lives. It's the taking of lives. And sometimes the, the consequences of it, while we have good intentions going in, are terrible intentions going out. Can I just tell you from a personal basis that the war in Iraq while it got rid of a bad man, Saddam Hussein, nobody would ever question that. Can I tell you for uh, my Assyrian uh, background, the people of Iraq, it created great harm. Do I think George Bush and the guys that were a part of that decision had thought that through? Probably not. Do I think they had good intentions? I think so. I think they had good intentions. But you know, hundreds of thousands of civilians in Iraq have lost their lives. And we need to understand this, that, that what we do and the political ramifications of things end lives. There were a million Assyrians living in Iraq before the war. 
They say now due to death, persecution, and an exodus from the country, there are less than 200,000. And we need to understand that these things have implications. And we need to think them through. It leads us then to the sanctity of life. Once we place ourselves in the authority of God's sovereign kingship, we will once and for all see that life is sacred. Therefore, we must fight for the rights, first of all, of the unborn. We got to fight for that. We got to fight for that. You know, as a kid, and not as a kid, as an adult, I, I look at documentaries. And, and to some of you older individuals who lived through the civil rights movement, can I tell you something? My generation don't get you. And I don't mean just you, but your generation. How could you look at an individual who was black and say, you can't use the same restroom, you can't eat in the same restaurant, you can't drink from the same water fountain, you can't go to the same school? That just is mind-boggling to me. How in the world could people be so dumb to think that God hasn't created them as the little Sunday school song said, Jesus loves the little children, all the little children of the world, red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Where was the disconnect? But brothers, can I tell you, tell you, my children are going to look at me and say, where were you on this abortion thing? My goodness. How could you not see the epic murder that's taking place and you did nothing about it? Brothers and sisters, just as we were back in the days of the civil rights movement, and we are the same way when it comes to abortion. We are asleep at the wheel and we have blood on our hands, not because we're the ones that are having abortions, but because we are the ones that our heart is not torn to pieces over it. And I tell you, that's more of a judgment on me than anyone else. Being pro-life involves also serving those who are underprivileged. You gotta understand, brothers and sisters, with the command of not killing is the positive command to bring life to those who are hurting. We live in a place where people need help. And we can help them. Are there charlatans? Are there con artists? You betcha. Are there people that are just trying to, uh, if you will, live off the system uh, just to live off the system? Yeah, there may be, but that never, that never keeps us from serving our neighbors as ourselves. It involves both the alien that is far from us, who's living in our, in our country, and it also involves those that we've known for a very long time. We are to help those who are underprivileged. We can't just be one-hit wonder when it comes to being pro-life because we have to help those who are exploited. We heard this morning uh, about servant works. And I'm not going to get into the, the depravity of the, of the epic sin that's going on in the life of, of young ladies, not only in Thailand, as we learned about for the servant works, but throughout the world. And within this setting, I can't even talk about the terrible things that are going on. And we're called to serve them. We can't sit in the coziness of our western suburban life and not find ways to serve them any way we can. How about the elderly? The same passion we have for the unborn brothers and sisters must be seen to the very end of the life. We must be people who love to walk with those who have gone before us and to walk them to the finish line. This means a concerted effort to serve those who have gone before us, to love them even when it's hard to do so, to serve them even when it may mean a loss of our own privileges and pursuits. You see, we just can't be a people who speak of being pro-life when a political stance is needing to be taken. But it must be who we are. Now before I leave here, I've got one other thing that I want to talk about. And it's just personal, personal talk with Tim for a moment. 
Because as I've been dealing with this, and as I've been studying this, even before we got to this, I got to be honest with you. Many of you will say, well, Tim, you know, I, I don't, I don't murder, and you know, I'm trying to do the best job I can, and, and, and that's what I would say. And then I would sit down, or I would go to a movie theater, and I would watch murder take place all around me. Now, we'll get to this next week, but we know that um, the images, the graphic images of, of decadence and sensuality on the screen is to be forbidden for Christians. I got that. I shouldn't go see movies with that in it. And yet the last thing I ever think about is the blood and the gore and all of the mayhem. And I will tell you, brothers and sisters, why is it that we as Christians find it so easy to be entertained by all of that killing? And yet we say, well, the seventh commandment says I can't do it, so I'll never go see that kind of stuff. But I can watch murder after murder after murder take place. And we're into it. Can I tell you that some of the most well-known TV shows not only are dealing with the murder, but the grotesque all the insides and outs of the murder, the more blood, the more guts, the more gore, we love it, and Christians are not immune to it. So brothers and sisters, when we talk about being pro-life, it involves our entertainment as well. And again, I'm all for a great action movie. But I gotta tell you, this has been bubbling up in my heart because the Holy Spirit says, how can you say this and live out my commands? How can you be pro-life when you, and I'll tell you something, there is something inside of me that gets fired up when I see that stuff. There's something that, yeah, just, that's awesome. And I will tell you, it isn't from a life that's led by the Spirit, but it is a part of me that still loves the flesh. And we gotta eradicate that stuff. We gotta get rid of it from our lives. The final point I need to close is our biblical priority to honor life. If we want to do God's will with the sixth commandment, we must come back to a priority of promoting life. So how do we do it? I'm going to give you four practical ways we're closing this thing down. You're like, what a, what a great message, Tim. I'm feeling so uplifted right now. Well, let me tell you something. The first thing we need to do as Christians is put others first. Put others first. The heart I mean, the act of murder comes, to a heart, comes from a heart of anger. And if we don't put others first, then that anger will be continue to boil in our hearts. You know, Jesus preached a message on pro-life. It was called the message of the Good Samaritan. Remember the story? A man is walking, and unbeknownst to him, a group of robbers come. They steal from him, and they leave him for dead. He's beaten to a bloody pulp. And Jesus talks about that two men go by, upstanding, men of character, men of the culture, men of society, one even being a religious man, and both of them walk on the other side of the road so they don't have to look at him. They see him, but they don't have time to deal with him. They don't have uh, the heart to deal with him. And so they go around him, and they leave him to die. And Jesus says that a Samaritan of all people, a Samaritan comes and addresses his needs. He takes care of him. He helps him on the road to healing. He takes him to an inn. He gives him food and drink. And he says, I will come back and I will check on this man. And we see that what Jesus is telling us is, is that if we're going to be pro-life, it is going to cost us. 
It's going to mean that we're going to get down and dirty with those who maybe we've never been a part of before to help them and to minister to them. But to do so, our attitude has to be right. And Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 and 22, that if you've got anger in your heart, you may not have never killed anybody with a gun or a knife. But the Bible says that if you have anger in your heart against your brother, you've committed murder in your heart against them. And so, brothers and sisters, while we may not be guilty of murder with our hands, can I be honest with you and say I believe many of us have been guilty of murder in our heart. We have to deal with that. And what Jesus says is put others first. So when that guy cuts you off in the lane on the interstate, let him cut you off. He obviously has to get somewhere a lot faster than you do. When someone says something wrong with you, forgive them, recognizing that God has forgiven you. We need to deal with this issue. Number two, we need to partner with others in supporting life. One thing I'm very happy with as a church is that we're doing this in greater and greater ways. We offer our people many concrete ways to do this. Get involved with Wayside Cross Ministry who deals with those who are, are on the down and out. Get involved with LifeSpring that helps women who have come from battered pasts and all kinds of struggles and issues to get them back on their feet. Get involved in the Pregnancy Information Center who offers life solutions to difficult problems of ladies that come with an unwanted pregnancy. Get involved with Feed My Starving Children that remembers that giving a cup, a cup of cold water and food in Jesus' name is of great concern to God. How about Compassion International? Taking on a child and adopting that child and helping them get through life in far-off places. Ministries like Rafiki that uh, the, uh, um, uh, Nichols are a part of where they help communities get on their feet in far-off lands. We've got tons of opportunities. You don't have to go outside of these four walls to find places that can be involved. We need to partner with those, and we need to do that not only with our money, but with our time and our energy. Another one is we have to pray and petition our leaders. Can I say that neither the Republicans nor the Democrats have a corner on the market when it comes to being pro-life? And what we need to do is pray that God will convict our leaders on both sides of the aisle, that God is the only authority. And the sooner that they learn it, the better off they will be. God's it, and they need to turn to him. The final way is we need to proclaim Christ to the nation. The only way that we rid ourselves of this hostility towards God and the war spirit is to show people that they can find peace with God. Because when we find peace with God, we will find peace with one another. Some have asked why we as a church don't get involved in the political landscape here at Village Bible Church, and our answer is simple. We cannot expect politics to do what only the cross can. And we do not stand on the side of right or left, but smack dab on the truth of God's word. He alone is our platform. He's the alone the one we serve. And so let me close with this. The sixth command is a sobering reminder to Christians everywhere that we live in a world of hate and death. It's easy for us to be overwhelmed by all of it in our media, entertainment, and life. Evil is so pervasive that it's easy for us to think that there's nothing we can do at all. And even though we see it, we need to stop walking by it. 
Jesus is calling us to be good Samaritans and to promote the well-being of others in every way we can. This way we are going to be called to pray and give and serve and love and lend a hand, always remembering that that is exactly what God did for us. And so maybe you find yourself under the weight of this commandment this morning, that you're a lawbreaker. Maybe there's an abortion in your past. Maybe there's some murder in your heart. I have some good news. God came to save murderers, both in heart and hand. And we need to not stay under the guilt, but we can run to the arms of Jesus who forgives and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. And that's where we begin to be pro-life. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this time in your word. And Lord, there is so much of this command that we didn't even address this morning. But Lord, what we did, I pray that it will be edifying to the listeners' ears. Lord, that we would really begin to look at all facets of our lives and ask the question, am I really pro-life? Am I really one who promotes the well-being of those around me? Am I really looking out to end this culture of death? Not so that we can put a, a pin on our lapel and say we've done this, but so that we as people may glorify the God who has created us. Lord, I pray that first and foremost, it would call us to share the gospel with those around, to that depressed soul who is longing to see this life come to an end, let them come and meet Jesus and find contentment and joy and peace. To the individual who finds himself dying on their deathbed, the gospel brings hope. The hope that Chad and Clay Conley's mom could have that absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Lord, let us be people who promote life in every way. Let it change the way that we watch entertainment, the way that we involve ourselves in politics, the way that it involves what we do as a church. Because, Lord, you have created each man, woman, and child. You long to be in a relationship with them. And our call is to be ambassadors who go on a mission of love to serve them in every way we can. So, Lord, lead us out into this place now as promoters of life according to your word. We give you all this in Christ's name. Amen.